The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's perfect and precious word to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2. Last week we heard the message uh, about why we sing and Hannah made uh, a prayer uh, towards the end, a song prayer uh, that beautifully captures the glory of God. And we're going to continue in the story to see how the narrative plays out and how Christ is going to be magnified as our coming king. But once you've gotten to 1 Samuel chapter 2, I'd like to invite you to stand for a reading of God's perfect and precious word. Starting in verse 30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with an envious eye on the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you that both of them will die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Let's pray together. Father, we ask nothing less than that you would speak to us this morning. I pray that as our eyes dart back and forth through your word, that by the power of your spirit, you would encourage those believers here who are trying to fight the good fight of obedience in a time and in a place where it's not so easy. But I also want to pray for those who are not Christ followers. I want to pray, God, that they would come with an open heart to hear and to learn. And I pray that by some miracle, they would hear your words and that they would gain a new heart so they can see the glory and the magnificence of our Lord Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, one of the ways you can see how a relationship transforms over the years is by looking at what they do on Valentine's Day. Uh, I remember a date that I took Kennedy on uh, on on Valentine's Day. We went to a very posh restaurant, jacket required. Uh, Of course, this was much earlier in our relationship. We were dating, so my dad slipped me his credit card to pay for it because I didn't have any money. You know, but we were acting the part. We were out on the town. But fast forward a few years and a couple kids later, uh, we found ourselves this past Valentine's Day on our couch with some takeout Mexican food, stuffing our faces with our eyes half open, about to pass out and fall asleep. 
But we decided, hey, you know, we've got to do something. We've got to, you know, we've got to do something to mark the occasion. Let's watch a movie. And, and, and normally we would turn on some high-octane drama or some suspense thriller, just something, you know, something that's going to grab our attention. I'm like, no, we're going to do, we're going to watch a cheesy romantic movie. So we turn on a movie called Valentine's Day, which is just the corn. Yeah, I got a couple chuckles here. It's, it is the corniest of the corn. It's corn on the cob. It is, it is a, it's a cringy love fest with every cultural uh, you know, thing about love that just makes you want to die. You just can hardly even listen to it. You know? But of course, in the film, there is that scene that seems to be in every romantic movie, the airport scene. The lover about to leave on a plane with only one chance to win the heart back. The, the, the person who's chasing after running through the terminal. The TSA agents who seem not to mind that there's someone running through the airport. All right? That'll get you tackled today. I don't know when that, was, that movie was made, but man. You know, they were chasing after it. I just want, I was just cringing. I was seeing it. And then I remembered that this had exactly happened to me. You see, when I was going to visit Peru, I was sitting in the terminal waiting to leave. Or it was me and, and Pastor Casey and a few other missionaries who were waiting to go on a short-term trip to Peru. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in the terminal, and I hear a woman yelling, Joey, 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 Joey! And I look back, and there's a woman chasing me, not with a bouquet in her hands, but with a box of Pop-Tarts. <laughs> and no, this wasn't uh, some romantic love interest. In fact, it was my mom. She's here with us today. You see, she wanted to make sure that I had all of my, well, if you don't know me, I have like 60, 70-something allergies. I have to pack snacks. You know, if you've got dietary restrictions, you know the deal. And if you don't have snacks, listen, man, there's no allergy menus in the top of the Andes Mountains, all right? You're stuck. And she wanted to make sure that I had my Pop-Tarts that I could eat the whole summer. I got a big jumbo party pack to stuff in my, to stuff in my bag. And I was actually really relieved. I was really looking forward to eating those Pop-Tarts. Until I, I looked over and I looked at, at Casey. And you guys know this look. <laughs> but he, you know when you know someone real well, you can just look at them and tell what they're thinking. And he said to me telepathically, he said, I'm going to remind you of this every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> and listen, he's faithful. That's a faithful pastor we've got here because it, there is not too long it goes by where he reminds me of that story. And I just wanted to melt. And, and, but, you know, this is just how moms are. This is a mother's love. Contract with my dad, he dropped, my dad dropped me off at college. And he walked, he got out of the car, he took my duffel bag, dropped it on the ground and said, hey, call me if you need anything. See ya. Got in the car, he left. He didn't even help me move in. He's gone. He's like, I'm hungry, I'm getting lunch. But this is just how mothers are. And we're entered into the scene with a mother departing from her child, look at verse 11 in chapter 2. That's where our text is starting. We're going to begin our text with a sad departure. It says, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. Elkanah is Samuel's father. Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is where we're picking up from last week. Hannah, despite 
praying that God would open her womb, that she would have a child, God mercifully, graciously grants her request, gives her a child, and then in an unfathomable act of obedience, she dedicates the child to service in the temple. She'll only see him once a year. Don't take that lightly. This wouldn't have been easy then. It wouldn't be easy now. Think about your children. Think about saying goodbye to them, especially an only child, especially a child that you prayed that you would have for so long. Hannah's act of of dedicating her child to the temple is is a sermon in and of itself. But the boy is here, and he's ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Eli is the, is the head priest of the temple at, at Shiloh, in this town called Shiloh. And he has been dedicated to the service of Eli the priest. Now, Samuel's not been given to him as a son. He's not joining the house of Eli. He can only serve as a Levitical priest. He can only help out around, but he can never be among the, the priests. That was left for those relatives who are direct descendants of Aaron, if you're familiar with that from Exodus. So we see Samuel serving in, serving and ministering to the Lord under Eli the priest. And in verse 12, we see now the sons of Eli, so the priest's sons are worthless men. Strong statement. And they did not know the Lord. Uh, that's, that's harsh for any time. It look, it, in verse 13, we're going to find out why. The text is going to show us. It says, the custom of the priests, and so uh, Eli's sons, we're going to meet them, Hophni and Phinehas, are serving as priests, as, the, as members of the house of Aaron. And the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, and he would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And that the fork brought up the priest would take up for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, this, this, now even though this is, not a, this is a kind of an alien world for us, these sacrifices and cauldrons and pots, there's something that just doesn't sit quite right reading the text. And if you're familiar, which you, no one expects you to be, but with Levitical law, God has given very strict instructions for what the priests can and cannot eat. Here are the instructions from Leviticus chapter 7. It says, The priest should burn the fat on the altar, but the breast will be for Aaron and his sons, and the right thigh you can give to the priest is a contribution from the sacrifice of your peace offerings. Whoever among the sons of Aaron offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat shall have the right thigh for the portion. So they're to have the breast meat and the right thigh meat. It's very, very specific. Okay, but here we see the the priests have opened up their own cookbook and now they're just sticking a fork into the sacrifices that are being given and they're taking whatever comes out. They're taking whatever it is that that they get out. I imagine that over time, the thigh meat and the breast meat, it would get kind of old, wouldn't it? You're kind of wanting some variety. Can we get Mexican tonight? Can we get some Japanese food tonight? We need some variety. We can't just live off of thighs and breast meat. But they're doing this unauthorized practice of staking the meat of the sacrifice. 
But then the, the text continues, and so they're sinning against the people of Israel, taking more than what they should from the sacrifice. It says, moreover, before the fat was burned, this is verse 15, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then you can take as much as you wish, he'd say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Not only are they taking, uh, they're taking more than what they should, they're also taking what is expressly forbidden in Leviticus 7. In Leviticus 7, it says, The Lord speaks to Moses, saying, Speak to the people Israel, saying, You shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the fat of an animal that dies of itself, and the fat of one that is torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but of no account shall you eat it. For every person who eats the fat of an animal of which a food offering may be made to the Lord shall be cut off from his people. This is a capital crime. This is a capital crime in Levitical law. And it's not, it's not some strangers who are, who are doing it. Not some, these are the priests. These are the ones who are to be guarding the sacrifices, who are to be the most passionate about the offerings to the Lord, and yet they treat it with less respect than anyone else. They're taking exactly what they want. Now, we've got an, a great group of, of guys in here led by Pastor Josh. He's the pastor of meats at this church. And so he'll sit o- over a grill for 12, 13, 14. Gabby, I've seen you out there too. I've seen you, you also know how to do it. But he'll sit out 13, 14 hours smoking the meats. And I, got, I decided to get into it. So I went to the store to pick out uh, my first piece of meat that I'm going to try to cook and do the slow, low and slow, 12-hour cook time. And so as I'm picking all of these different cuts of pork, I'm like, you know, I'm looking for the ones and I'm like, no, this one's got too much fat on it. This one's got too much fat on it. And I find one that's just pink. There's not any fat on the thing. And so I put that thing on the smoker. I follow all of Josh's instructions as I'm feverishly texting him, not wanting to ruin it. And I come out there and I try to cut into it. And I'm like, this thing is bone dry. You see, the fat serves a very specific purpose in the, the smoking world. It's sacred. You see, as you're smoking the meats at these low temperatures, as the fat begins to melt, it, it divides up all that moisture into the meat. It adds a beautiful flavor. It adds, it adds the moisture that you really want in good barbecue. It's the best part, in fact. And you see, the priests are taking the best for themselves in leaving the rest to the Lord. And thereby, they're completely reversing their their purpose. You could see in Exodus 28, God, when he first establishes this priesthood, he says this, you shall anoint them and ordain the priests and consecrate them and set them aside. They were even given these uh, incredible ephods. You're going to see that word in the text, the ephod. 
it's a, it's a, it's a, a ceremonial uh, robe that's made out of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. It's got fine twined linen. It's got gems on it, onyx, gold linings, and golden chains all over them. All of this, all of this uh, beauty and this beautiful garment there to wear. But for, for what purpose? He says in Exodus 20, he says, you should consecrate them, ordain them, that they may serve me as priests. The priests, at some point along the line, as they're putting on their fancy garbs, as they're taking from the sacrifices, as they're taking the thigh meat, as they're taking all this stuff, they forgot what they were there for. They forgot that they were even put in the temple to worship and serve the Lord, to serve Yahweh. The scary part is, is that you can do all of that. You can go in and serve yourself. You can do whatever it is and fulfill all of your desires, all the while thinking that you're serving God. And that's the danger that faces us, church. We can come to God with the same heart attitude as these priests. And it's hard not to see the contrast between Hannah and Elkanah, the, pre, the, the, the parents of Samuel, and these priests, the priests coming in and taking whatever they want and saying that they're worshiping God, but really they're just satisfying their own desires and wants. And then you have Hannah, Elkanah, they have, they have their only child. And for the sole purpose of serving God, let him go. You see, as the narrative moves on, Samuel is ministering before the Lord in verse 18. A boy clothed with a linen ephod. Notice there's no gems. There's no fine twined linen. There's no gold chains. In fact, his mother used to make it for him. A little robe and she would take it to him each year. She'd only see him once a year. <laughs> She'd take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And then Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition that she asked of the Lord. So then they would return her at home. And indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. At the time they said goodbye to their son, the Lord does honor their prayers. He gives them more children than they ever thought was possible. But when they gave up Samuel, they had no promise that another child was coming. These are two radically different ways of following God. One is where I have my desires. I know what I want. I'm going to take what I want, and I'm going to use the church to get it. All right? I'm going I'm I'm to fulfill my desire for a good reputation, a good family, have a good, uh, a, a good persona in the community, and I'm going to use God to get it. Whereas we see Hannah and Elkanah, they come, and they come to serve, and they offer up everything, even their most precious son, to serve Yahweh with no promise that he's going to return the favor. Only one of these parties is following after God in true faith, and that's Hannah and Elkanah. The priesthood has been ruined. They're a shadow of what they were meant for. But what we see, I want to focus on Hannah and Elkanah, is a picture of a selfless heart that longs to serve God 
in submission to the conditions that God has placed them in. You know, it's one way to look at your life and to say, hey, I'm going to take whatever I can get out of this and I'm going to use the best tool to do it. Or to say, I'm going to accept whatever God has for me and I'm going to serve him regardless, no matter what happens. And that's what we see in this beautiful young family. But God is gracious. He, he brings them children. But then we see this, this, this narrative here, this, this statement about Samuel. It says, and Samuel the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. As we see the, the ironic priesthood descending into sin, we see this young boy Samuel rising to stature, but not outwardly. I imagine that there's a few of the ladies or maybe even some of the men in here who sew. Or who maybe at least could uh, rip some, some torn pants if you could mend them. But I often think about how much work it would be for her to make a new, uh, a new ephod for her son Samuel every year. You've got to account for so many things. You know, I imagine the, oh, he, I'm guessing, I haven't seen him since last year. I'm guessing he grew an inch or two. I'm guessing maybe his, his arms might be a bit longer. You can almost see her in the, in the late nights with the, with the, with the little candle uh, burning and she's working and her fingers are bleeding from sewing to, to, build, to, to make this garment for her son Samuel. And we see that as the priesthood, they look, they look the part, but inwardly they're corrupt. Now Samuel doesn't look the part. He's got a hand-me-down, handmade ephod that his mom made him, but he's adorned by his growth in his character. But these... Boys are going to do what boys do, and they do one thing, and they grow. Look with me at, at verse 22 as we, we see Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, suffer from apparent neglect. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Kids grow up and they grow into uh, more advanced kinds of sin, don't they? Uh, right now, my family's in a phase where we really just have to worry about one kid bonking the other one on the head, stolen blocks. But it's a grim reminder and it's a, it's a reminder to us that our kids won't be six forever. But these sons are now graduating to new and new levels of uh, newer and bigger levels of depravity, and they're using their office to take advantage of these women who are serving in the temple. And Eli finds out about it. The priest, he keeps hearing it. He's hearing rumors that his sons are these worldly uh, men, these worthless men, and he has a chance to respond. He says, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And now I listen, I love, we all love Christ. We, lo we, want, we love the gospel. But he, when he, we say, who can intercede if you sin against God? We want to say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that's true, but that's not what's being referred to here. He's telling his son, you're putting yourself in a horrible position where you're going to get punished. But 
Look at the text. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And the boy, Samuel, continues to grow in stature and in favor with God and also with man. That's his chance to rebuke his sons, to stop what's going on, but his sons are immune to the call of repentance. They're too far gone. And then in verse 27, there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, this man of God, we're not quite sure who he is, but he just appears in the narrative, Uh, but he comes with a message from the Lord. He says, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to go up to my altar and to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. God's reminding him through this man of his goodness to to Eli. He says, look at all the, the good gifts that I've given your house. I've given you the privilege of ministering in my temple, of witnessing it, and administrating all of the sacrifices. I mean, I, it's not the same thing, but... There is a unique joy that that me and the other pastors get to have when we get to hold out the Lord's Supper and we see each face pass by grateful for the gospel, grateful to come back and get a fresh dose of grace. And they get to be firsthand witnesses to that in the sacrifices. He he mentions all of his faithfulness to the house. And then in verse 30, he says, he's in verse 29, he says, why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people, Israel. And I thought Hophni and Phinehas were the bad guys here. I thought they were the ones who were taking advantage of the priesthood, and they were. But now, from this word of the Lord, God is telling him, I'm holding you accountable for this. You are responsible for what happens in your house. Now let's skip ahead. Look at in, in verse 3 because we need to have this clarified. We need to understand why is God all of a sudden so concerned with Eli and not with the sons? In chapter 3, verse 13, you can look there. It's, it should be maybe even on the same page. Chapter 3, verse 13, God is explaining to Samuel why he's ending the house of Eli. And he says, I declare to him that I'm going to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. He didn't stop them. God is holding these boys' father accountable for allowing sin to ruin his house and to ruin the priesthood. I'd imagine that he thought he was being merciful and patient. Oh, boys these days, can you pray for him maybe? Maybe even ask for prayer requests. But at the end of the day, God holds him to account and said, you're accountable. You allowed this to happen. What we see behind the evil of these sons is a neglectful father. A father who refuses to intervene when his sons and children are locked in sin. You see, he, he warned, you can look, at, look back at the text at his, as, as he attempts to quote-unquote rebuke his sons, but he does, he does no such rebuke. 
He just warns them of the consequences. Hey, something bad is going to happen if you keep going this way. I'm hearing bad reports. The word around town is not good about you guys. You better stop. But they never put it, he never put a stop to it himself, even though he had the authority and the position to do so. In church, I worry that we may be guilty of the same sins in relation to our children. Now, I want to, I'm going to make a distinction here between the sin-ignorant parent and the sin-wise parent. But I want to, I think it's important, we're about to talk about parenting and the, the use of godly loving discipline in their lives, but I want to qualify it first. And I want to speak to you, first of all, no matter what you do in parenting, there is no guaranteed outcomes. You can do everything that you're required. In fact, later in the text, we see Samuel does everything he's required of in the life of his sons. He receives no such judgment from the Lord. So there's a sense in which if you are just faithful, if you're faithful to God to to steer your children away from sin, to lead them away, to do everything you can to restrain them, but there's no promises. There is not one of us who knows how our children are going to turn out, least of all me. But we're still accountable to be faithful. And the second one is this, sinful parents ruin good things. So as we're talking about discipline, hear this. The call of God to be gentle, loving, humble, and encouraging in our parenting is not negotiable. Okay, so if you've experienced any sort of abuse from a parent, if you've witnessed any kind of abuse from the parent, the Bible does not condone that at all. It speaks about it in the harshest possible judgment, and that sin will be judged. We're not to be domineering or harsh or thoughtless in our parenting, but the Bible does commend the wise use of, of discipline and of, of, of loving discipline in the life of our children. So I've got nine uh, features that I want to talk about. I'm going to make nine comparisons between the sin-ignorant parent and the sin-wise parent. The first one is this. The sin-ignorant parent always warns about discipline that's to, to come. The sin-wise parent administers discipline and consequences in the moment. You can see God condemning Eli. He says, you didn't do anything. Maybe you're like me. You may, you might, I could have totally imagined him saying, man, it's not the right time. It's not the right time. It's never the right time. No, administer discipline and consequences while you can, while your children are in your house. And how do we pick that? How do you know what you should do? Uh, because there's not a guide. There's not a handbook on this. I'm going to offer you some general wisdom But as you're choosing, what consequences should I give to my children? What should I use to discipline them? Pick something that they're going to understand and care about. Now listen, I love Bluey. You love the show Bluey. Your your one and a half year old does not care if you're going to take away Bluey. If you say, hey, no, don't do that. I'm going to take away Bluey. You chase him around. He's not listening. He doesn't, wait, a one and a half year old doesn't speak English, guys. But we run around, we're like, we're speaking to them in a foreign language, hoping that they're going to get it. Have you ever had just someone like start talking to you in a foreign language? It's stressful, you don't get it. Apply measures that they're going to understand. All right, with very young children, a simple hand slap is going to communicate everything. You could talk for one hour. 
but a little pat on the hand is going to communicate everything they need to know. They're going to get that. But as you're thinking about it, maybe your child is older, okay? You're not going to bend them over your knee, give them space. This is an older child, but they have a phone that they really love. They can't get their eyes off of it, okay? Take that thing away. Don't say, oh, I'm going to take it away if you keep going. Take it! <laughs> you see, with the sin-ignorant parent, discipline's always coming, but it never arrives. The sin-ignorant parent also excuses sin. They try to explain it away in circumstantial terms. Oh, he was in a bad situation. Oh, I didn't... Listen... The circumstances, the therapeutic circumstances, the life circumstances that lead to sin, we all can understand those. We can say, I understand because I've been there. But when sin itself, when we're talking about sin, we don't make excuses for it. We don't say, oh, if he was in a better position, he would have done differently. We know our own hearts. We know that that's not the truth. The sin-wise parent is going to confront sin is going to stand up and boldly speak against it. The sin-ignorant parent shields their child from consequences so that when they do sin, they say, no, I don't want the consequences to harm my child. I'm here to protect them. The sin-wise parent allows consequences to teach their child valuable lessons. And I understand that at a young age. There are consequences that you need to protect them from, my, my, one, of my, one of my older sons was throwing rocks at cars they were driving by. If you guys have ever had one of those, I was one of those kids. But the, the driver of the car, he came up to the door. He was angry. I didn't have Emmett come and talk to him. I didn't know he's, he's a little too young for that. But as they get older, they need to know that there are consequences for sin. Consequences that you can't protect them from. By doing this, you're going to send your children a very important message. Is that one day they're going to be on the judgment seat. They're going to have to give an account for how they lived their life, the choices that they made, and whether they have true abiding faith in Christ. And in that courtroom, parents, you will not be called as a character witness. They're going to have to stand themselves and give an account. Prepare them for it. If we're always excusing away their sin, what happens when they meet the God of the Bible who will not abide sin and even his, even his own people? Prepare them for that day. The sin-ignorant parent is worried about their reputation. Oh, my, my child sinned and everybody in the church knows about it. Everybody at the school knows about it. My kid is starting to get a reputation. You can see Eli. You hear it in his language as he's, as he's trying to rebuke his children, which he does no such thing. He says, the report is no good, kids. I got a bad report from school. What, what are you going to do about that? It's, it's not a good word. Yeah, I'm hearing some pretty nasty things. The sin-wise parent doesn't care about reputation. They care about their relationship with their child. We don't care about what other people think. And that, listen, if if you don't have kids, but you serve in Ashland Kids Plus, this means everything. If you serve over in Ashland Kids Wing, listen, when, when I come to pick up my children, 
Do I, I want to hear, I, there's something I do want to hear. I want to hear, yeah, he was great today. But listen, if he was not great today, okay, if they were a piece of work, if they were disobedient, tell me about that. As a church, we need to all be on the same page. We're not, we're not making judgments about reputations here. All right, we don't, we don't do that here at Ashland Community Church. So if they, if they were disobedient, if they were horrible, say they were disobedient and horrible. I want to deal with that as a parent. But in a church where reputation's the main concern, oh, he was great today. Oh, he was wonderful. They're not. They're not wonderful. <laughs> You've been in those classrooms. You know it. The sin-ignorant parent is unaware, naive, and not present. Do you notice in the text that Eli had to hear about his son's sin? He didn't see it. He wasn't there in the temple. He had no idea. He had to hear about it from some friends, from some, from some other, uh, other employees. But the sin-wise parent is watchful, is prepared to deal with sin, but most of all is present. No matter what you've got going on in your life, no matter what's going on in, in your work life, no matter what's going on, you need to make time to be with your kids. You need to be around them. You can't delegate this to somebody else. You can't say, oh, well, the, the therapist is going to take care of him. I don't really know what's going on with this issue. Oh, the teachers are going to teach him everything he needs to know. Oh, the youth ministry is going to teach him everything to know. You need to be present, parents. You've got to be there. You've got to be watchful. You've got to know what they're doing. You've got to know what they're reading in, in the Bible. If they're reading the Bible, what's your child's prayer life like? What are they learning about God at church? What are you teaching them about God at home? The call is on us, parents. The call is on us. The sin-ignorant parent blames the culture. See what, he, what Eli said, what we see earlier in the text, he says, when it's talking about the sacrifices, the priests taking whatever they want, it says this. It says, it had become the culture of the priests. It had become, it, it had become uh, what everybody does. Kids these days, the priests these days, they just take whatever they want out of the pot. I can't control it. You know, they got these phones, they're doing all these new things. I can't, I can't, I can't relate to that. But the sin-wise parent shapes family culture and leads them against, their children against the flow of culture, especially when it's sinful, but also when it's not helpful. The sin-ignorant parent abdicates authority. Hey, buddy, it's okay. It's okay, buddy. You're, you, you, know, you're, you know, you don't want to administer authority. But the sin-wise parent uses authority for the good of their children. If you look at Eli's rebuke, he warns them. He, he says, oh, you know, this, this is not going to turn out well for you. He never gives a command. He administers no authority. He doesn't use his authority. He is the boss. He is, he's dad. He has that authority. But he's also the head of the priestly house of Eli. All right? He calls the shots when it comes to the temple. And he said, imagine another world where he had looked at his sons and said, okay, you're fired. You're out. Take the ephods off. You're out of the temple. That would have been the right response. All right? You're, you are not fit to serve. But he doesn't do any such thing. There's no consequences. He issues no commands. He doesn't even tell them to stop. And lastly... 
The sin-ignorant parent prioritizes convenience. The sin-wise parent prioritizes the obedience. Here's why this is important and why I wanted to, to finish on this. When it comes to uh, when, when the, most, the most condemning uh, verse here in the scriptures is this. It says, but they did not listen to the voice of their fathers. The most dangerous thing going on in your child's life is that they will not listen to those who love them the most. They will not listen. They will not obey those who have dedicated their lives to raising them. Their obedience should be of the utmost importance. And so when you're choosing, what should we administer consequences for when they disobey your commands? When they break the rules that you've established in your home, this should be met with the most serious uh, intervention. But it, here's the thing. If you don't focus on that, and, and here's where a lot of us are going to be in sin in our parenting. We're going to discipline the things the hardest that annoy us the most. The thing that bothers me is what I'm going to react most strongly to. So when you disobey my commands for your safety, for your good and protection, oh, it's okay, buddy, you're fine. But then when she breaks Aunt Dot, they break Aunt Dottie's fine china, that's when I get really heated. That's when I get really mad. Your children are paying attention to what makes you angry, what draws the most concern, and they're taking note. And they're learning. Don't do what annoys mommy and daddy. Don't do what bothers them. What a terrifying position to put a child in where they have to anticipate your emotional needs. Make it about obedience and disobedience, not about what's annoying you in the moment, or even worse, just how you're, how you're feeling crummy that day. But here, out of all those things, here's the teaching. Eli never took his son's sin seriously. So they never did. And now they're beyond the call of repentance. They can't even hear their father's call. They don't even know who God is. It's too late for them. And so we move on to a word of judgment. But we do hear about a, a worthy priest in verses 30 through 36. Look at me at verse 30. It says, Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall light, be lightly esteemed. This is terrifying. He's going back to when he, he first gave, as, as part of the house of Aaron, he gave the house of Eli this charge to serve him. He says, and this is going to be yours forever. If you just obey my commands, if you serve me, this is going to be yours forever. And here we get to this point where he says, oh no, I'm not going to honor that. I'm not going to honor, uh, I'm not going to honor this promise uh, because you've abandoned it. You've forfeited the promise. You've completely inverted the priesthood and made it all about you. And guess what? I'm not going to honor that. You guys are gone. And the consequences are dire. He says, behold, the days are coming, in verse 31, where I'll cut off your strength and your, of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in your distress, you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. 
The only one of you whom I will not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house will die by the sword of men. And worst of all this, hear this as a parent or with the children in your life, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, it'll be a sign to you, both of them will die on the same day. The, the consequences of the sin that's ravaged Shiloh are, are dire. Where God is, he's going to be faithful to his promise to the house of Aaron to be priest. But he says, for this, for you, the, you relative of Aaron, your house at Shiloh, I'm going to kill all of you. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth, all except one old man who's going to be there to cry about it. This is, this is what sin does. This is what sin's end goal is, your destruction, your child's destruction. We cannot play with it. It is not, it's not fun. It's not a toy. It's not something you're struggling with. We need to make war against our sin, lest we or even our children bear that judgment. But even in this this judgment, things could not get any lower. But in verse 35, we have this. He said, It says, I'll raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do so according to what's in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Everyone who's left in the house of Eli will come and implore him for a piece of silver, of a loaf of bread, and say, please put me in one of the priest places that I might might just have a morsel of bread. Who is this faithful priest? It's the boy Samuel. The one who while Hophni and Phinehas are busy uncovering new ways of sinning as Eli covers his ears and shuts his eyes, he's blind to the sin of his sons and he allows the the priesthood in Shiloh to be completely ravaged by sin. We see this little boy wearing a, a, a handmade ephod clothed in stature and in character And he's going to take over. The unrighteous priests are going to be taken away, wiped off the face of the earth, and will be replaced by this faithful priest. But there's one statement here that doesn't quite fit. He says, I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what is in my heart and my mind, and I'm going to build for him a sure house. It's true. Samuel is going to be dedicated to the glory of God. He's a good priest. He's going to share the oracles of God. He's going to be a a prophet as well. But he says, I'm going to build him a sure house. And that's not what Samuel experiences at all. In fact, his children do not walk in the ways of the Lord. His house is anything but sure. This, this, This statement, this promise is fulfilled in Samuel, but it's even more greatly fulfilled in our prophet, priest, king, Jesus Christ. Look with me, in in, in Hebrews 5, you can turn there, you can turn to Hebrews 5, verses 5 through 9, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. He says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence before God. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This perfect priest, this Jesus Christ, this, this new high priest after the order of Melchizedek, he wouldn't, he's not going to steal the sacrifices from the pot. He's not going to dip his hands in the offering plate. Instead, he's going to throw himself into the cauldron of God's own wrath on the cross. This priest will be born as a son, but will not use any of the privileges for himself, but will use his privilege to purchase salvation for those who deserve it the least. That's you and me, church. He won't steal from God's people, but he'll pour himself out for them. He won't demand a sacrifice, but he'll become one. And this one who was a son, he had no silver spoon. He wasn't treated better than all of us. In fact, he had, the same, he had to fight the same hard fight of obedience. See that in Hebrews? He had to learn obedience the hard way. He had that same fight of obedience, and it's the same fight that you're in right now. But what about this sure house? What is that talking about? What is the sure house that Jesus fulfills that Samuel never could? As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Church, let's go out and proclaim the excellencies of this high priest. Let's pray together.